And so if you'll open to the book of Philippians in your New Testaments and stand with me, we're going to read together. And I just realized I forgot my glasses and the print is really tiny, but I'm going to make it. <laughs> Actually, because it's so tiny in my Bible, I am going to use my notes because I fortunately did print them in my notes. If you'll read along with me, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he who has began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. Now, before we step into our passage, I think it's important that we understand a little bit of the background and the history, not only of Philippi, but the church there. And if you were to look way back, and I, and I was sharing with someone earlier this week, I can tend to kind of geek out on history. I love history. Um, but... Just if you're to look back, the earliest name of this city, this Macedonian or Greek name is Krenides, which means fountains or springs because there was an abundance of water in that region, natural fresh springs. And around 359 BC, Philip of Macedon, Philip II of Macedon, took control of the city because of the Thracian conflict that was in the area. And he was more than happy to come to the aid of the local residents there because of the rich gold and silver deposits there in uh, Mount Pangeum and also the timber. I think there's something whistling at me. Uh, later, Philippi would become a center of Greek culture under the rule of Alexander the Great. So as, as they kind of moved through history then, and this would continue for some 200 years, really until the Romans then conquer Macedonia around 168 BC. And, be, and then sub, over the subsequent years, the city would see a, like a steady decline 
in their importance in the region until about 40 BC after the battle of Philippi, um, which was after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Uh, Octavian, who would later become Augustus Caesar, he gave land grants to the, the military veterans, the Roman military veterans, and in the city of Philippi. And so the city really then kind of takes on this very Italian or Roman culture uh, because they really controlled the central parts of this. And they were given special privileges. They were, they were given uh, a, a title that bestowed upon them the right to be, even though they were not in Italy and Rome, they were to be treated as if the city was part of Rome. So it was given a high status and that elevated and then that, of course, just furthered the Roman culture there. Religiously, there was still a very mixed culture. In fact, there were still um, pieces of the original Thracian gods. Um, Liber Pater, one of their prominent gods, who was the god of uh, the grape harvest and wine. This was similar to Bacchus, who is uh, the god of the Romans in that same vein. And but additionally, there was all the remaining Macedonian or Greek, and you're almost using these Macedonian Greek together. They're almost synonymous. But that very Roman culture, yet still a predominantly Greek population. And it's in the middle of that that Paul arrives there in Philippi during his second missionary journey or his second mission trip. And it was his first, the first to the European continent. And this was around 51 AD or so. As he was given, by, given a vision by God as he was traveling, and he was prevented from spreading the gospel in Asia Minor, which is kind of like modern day Turkey, that area. And he was given this vision in Troas of a man, a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. And so at that point, his traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, they head to Philippi. When they reach there, usually upon arriving in a city, as Paul's custom would be, he would go to the Jewish synagogue. As he said in, in Romans, he said to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the, to the Gentile. But he arrives there, and in this culture, there was very little Jewish presence. How do we know this? This is supported by the fact, and fact and that in Acts 16, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, they go outside of the city gate to a place where Jews would have gathered to pray because there wasn't a synagogue for them to pray. And they would usually do this near water because this was part of their ceremonial cleansing. So they go to this area and they meet there. Now, how long did they stay? That, that is unknown. We don't, we don't know exactly how long they stayed in Philippi. Some suggest maybe as much as three months until they were eventually jailed and then asked to leave the city. 
Now, being a Roman colony, the emperor's cult, and this is a major religious component of that culture at the time, um, Caesar was worshipped as a god. Again, as, as a result, in, in Acts chapter 16, verses 20 through 21, uh, after casting out a demon from a young woman, and, and their, she was a slave, and then their owner, her owners, were furious that they'd lost their source of income because she was foretelling the future. Then the people rise up and they drag Paul and Silas as those who appear to be Jews, or they know as Jews, they're arrested, beaten with rods, and then thrown in prison. And this is what it says there. It says, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. And this is, again, referring to earlier things that had happened in the culture, maybe earlier where the Jews were expelled from Rome. And eventually, after their miraculous release, the subsequent conversion of the jailer and his household, they were asked to leave. And it's believed then that Luke remains behind to kind of shepherd and kind of lead this new congregation. And that's where we're at. The church's founding, the gathering of believers. But now what prompts Paul to write this letter? What prompts him to reach out to them some 10 or 11 years later, he's there in Rome. He is in prison. And this is around perhaps 61 or so AD. Now, in his letter, Paul mentions some very specific things. And they kind of build the basis for why he writes to them. And there's nine things. There's, there's others, but these are probably the most prominent of them. Um, in chapter 1, verse 5, it's their joyful partnership in the gospel. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it's the progress of the gospel even through his imprisonment. And then chapter 1, verse 19, Timothy's or Paul's appreciation for their ongoing prayers as part of their participation. Chapter 2, 19 through 21 is Timothy's upcoming visit. He's saying, I'm sending Timothy to you. An update on chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, uh, an update on Epaphroditus who fell ill to the point of death, as Paul says. Chapter 3, verses 2 and also 18, a concern about false teachers. And this is a common theme in some of his letters. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2, it's a lack of unity within the body, specifically between Yodia and Syntyche. And then last in chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, Paul's appreciation for their financial support. Now, his purpose was to encourage the church, to strengthen them, to encourage the believers to joyfully contend for and stand firm in the faith and in the partnership of the gospel through the unity in Christ as fellow citizens of heaven. And this is the same message to you and I today that we would joyfully contend for the faith, stand firm in it, and in the partnership of the gospel through the unity in Christ as fellow citizens of heaven. Now, some have called, the Philippian, called Philippians, the book of Philippians, the epistle of joy. Why? Because 
the word joy or the idea of joy is mentioned some 16 times in just four short chapters. That was a primary emphasis of the book. And as we go through this, I hope that we would see the joy that we have or that we can have, as Paul says, in our partnership. That we would remember that we have a joyful partnership, first and foremost, with the Lord, and then secondarily, the joyful partnership that we have together as the body of Christ. And not just here at CCSE, but the larger body of Christ outside of this place. And so Paul joyfully now writes to his brothers and sisters, his friends, his fellow workers, and he writes the following words where we pick up now in verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins the letter with a significant acknowledgement of him and Timothy being bondservants. Uh, I like the Greek word doulos, which some of us may be familiar. But what does that mean? What does that word bondservant mean? Because we don't necessarily have that context today in our culture. Well, in the Jewish mind, this harkens all the way back to Leviticus chapter 25, 47 through 49. And it's describing those who owed a debt they could not pay. And therefore, they would willingly sell themselves into slavery, servitude, for a specific period of time. Now, for the Gentiles or the Greeks and Romans, there was a similar understanding that this kind of thing happened also in their culture. For us, the closest connection that we might have would be during the founding of really the new world, the United States. In those early days, people that wanted to travel to the new world but couldn't afford it, they would willingly sell themselves to a landowner in the new colonies. And it was called indentured servitude. They were willing slaves, and that was for a specific period of time until they could pay off that debt. Now, Paul, or for us here, he wants to remind himself and all of us as the readers that indeed what we have done is become willing slaves. We have become bond servants, indentured servants. We owed a debt we could not pay. And we agreed. We said, well, there's no way we can satisfy this. We know that our sin permanently separated us from God. And there was only one solution, a perfect sacrifice in our place. And this is the very thing that Jesus came to do. This is the joy of the gospel that we are, our debt is paid, our relationship with Christ, with God, the creator of heaven and earth is restored. That's the most joyful thing. No longer, as Paul says, are we slaves to sin, but we are free in Christ, free to pursue what God determined from the foundations of the earth for us, to know him, to enjoy him forever, and to make him known. More than that, 
as followers of Jesus, according to John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, we were also adopted as sons and daughters, and we enjoy that status for eternity. So it's not just as if it was enough to be set free from the debt. We are now given a place in the kingdom which we do not deserve. Amen? It's grace. It's this beautiful relationship. It's this beautiful partnership. And with that, as Paul writes now, he wants us to remember as bondservants, none of us are greater than our master. Not one of us is greater than another. Uh, Even as we were, as the elders and deacons and board members were praying over Samantha and I, it doesn't elevate me above anyone else. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you know me long enough, I'm likely going to disappoint you. Why? Because I'm human, right? The moment we start looking to another man or woman to be our answer and our security, we are headed down a dangerous path. This is why Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. So... But none of us is greater. He emphasizes this fact in chapter 2 when he exhorts us to consider others better than ourselves, to have that attitude that Christ has. He highlights this when he says, to all the saints and to the overseers and deacons. He wants to span every aspect of the church as they might see it in their minds from the lowest to the greatest. What he's saying, no, is we're on the same playing field together that we are in partnership together, each, as he would later write, functioning as a part of the body, as God designed us to do, and each of us interdependent, dependent upon one another for our health, for the health of the body. We are not only bond servants, but also saints, those who are set apart for the glory of God and for his purposes. Now, just as a, as a way of analogy, when you and I go to the store to buy our favorite, our favorite drink, maybe it's kombucha, I do not like it. <laughs> maybe it's a monster energy, my heart will not take all that caffeine. <laughs> or maybe it's Dutch or whatever your favorite coffee is. Maybe you grab some trail mix, some chips, some cookies, or maybe Takis if you like the spicy stuff. But we make our selection, we scan, swipe, or maybe if old school we lay down some cash, and we purchase it and we walk out. We purchase something we believe that would bring us some joy or sustenance or whatever it would be, and the moment we bought it, it belongs to us. To use as we see fit, the, the former owner the store or whoever has it, had it, that we purchased it, they have no power over it. No power over how it's used. Now, like Romans chapter 9, this is what we're told. We are purchased by God. And as the potter, because we are related to as the clay, as the potter, he alone has the right to shape and mold and use us as he sees fit. This was the purchase agreement. And once we said, yes, you can purchase me, we, all of our ownership rights, we surrender. Do we struggle with this? <laughs> yes, we do. 
right? We get easily distracted and pretty soon we're saying, we start saying things like, I just want what's right for my life. Whoa, whoa. Is it my life? Didn't I agree to give it up? No, it was the purchase and that purchase precludes a lot of decisions now that I no longer have at my disposal. Now, however, unlike the snacks that we purchase, God's purchases are always good <laughs> all the time. And the purpose for that, our lives, is always good. So since God purchases for good and glorious purposes, Paul's following phrase makes perfect sense. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's 10 epistles or his letters... They all begin with some form of this, grace and peace. And, and I, I'm, I know it's intentional that he does this because if we are sure of our identity, if we know who we are in relationship to God, if it's founded on our relationship with Jesus and his purchase and purpose of our lives, we will understand the grace received and we will be able to understand and apprehend and impart to others the peace that comes with that. Grace and peace. It's when we understand God's grace and what he has given us, then we fully understand and are able to apprehend peace in our lives. Having reminded them of their shared partnership as saints, as bondservants of Jesus, that they have this grace and peace now in their lives, Paul becomes even more personal now in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. In light of who we are in Christ and his grace towards us as fellow heirs and partners in this really supernatural ministry of the gospel, thanks ought to be at the forefront as we think about what he's done for us, as, as we were praying this morning before the services and, and thanks and thanksgiving, I love what Rick Lurton said, you know, today is Thanksgiving. We might not be eating turkey or all those things, but every day for the believer is Thanksgiving. Every day. And it ought to be at the forefront. As he remembered as Paul remembered his first encounter with the church at Philippi, the joy they shared in salvation, the, even the joy that they shared in suffering, in the miracle of being released from the jail in Philippi, Paul was provoking them to pray for their well-being consistently. He's saying, pray consistently. More than that, Paul acknowledged their continual participation in the gospel, that they were coming together, that there is something to be thankful for, that we are partnering together with others. We are not alone in this. We have one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, Paul spoke 
to the church at Corinth about sacrificial faithfulness of the church at Philippi. He's, he's telling the church at Corinth, like, I want to tell you the amazing things that the church in Macedonia, speaking of the church at Philippi. And this is what he says. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Then in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. And he's referring to some historical things that were taking place in that area because of the Roman occupation. They were a very poor church. After Rome conquered all of Macedonia, they took most of the region's wealth. And what remained under the control was under the control of Roman leaders in the province. So the average Macedonian, the average Greek in that area was not wealthy. Yet, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, they gave out of their poverty. At the little bit that they have, they gave sacrificially with joy, having recognized what they had been given through Christ. And they gave this gift to help the church in Jerusalem that was suffering great persecution. And this further emphasized Paul's point that all believers everywhere are part of one church. One church. That the God has for us one body which Christ is the head of. And sometimes I, I know this is easy for us to do when we think about different denominations and different things. I was talking with a lady this morning, Audrey, and just talking about other churches and their practices, their distinctives. Listen, if we are preaching the gospel, if we are staying true to the core, what's called core of orthodoxy, those basic tenets of the Christian faith, if we have a little bit of differences, that's okay, isn't it? If we like a little bit of different style of worship, if we have a little different order to our services, this is okay because the body is made up of what? Many members. And they're not all, all identical, are we? As we look around here just in this body, aren't you glad that we're all different? I'm glad I didn't marry me and that I married Sam. <laughs> right? but that we are one body and it's for his glory, Christ as the head. This unity is the foundation of the individual or local church, but also the larger church, Christ's church around the world. And therefore we must all serve each other no matter our location. He's helping them remember this. It's not just like he's saying, hey, Philippi, you're doing a great job. Keep doing that in your little, you know, little own kingdom. And he's saying, no, I'm here in Rome. I know the, Corinth, the Corinthian church has heard about you. You're each, the Jerusalem church has heard about all of you. The body of Christ is blessed by the body of Christ. Verse 6, he says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, this is a central piece of this passage. One of the central pieces of our joy in Christ. 
because our unity is in Jesus, our head, our savior, our king, the sovereign God of all creation, because we are purchased of God, he will see his purposes in our lives fulfilled. Amen? He will see them fulfilled. We used to say in the army sometimes when we were telling someone to do something and they were like, I don't think I want to do that. You can go quietly or you can go kicking and screaming, but go you will. Now, this is the truth. God says in his word, he says, those whom he loves, he, he what? He disciplines. We can go quietly with joy or we can go kicking and screaming, but we are going to go according to his plan. And it's his desire that we do it with great joy. This truth is foundational to our confident joy. When we, I, we, I said this recently to um, a, a, a gathering of our leadership, so the elders, deacons, board, ministry leaders, home group leaders. I said, ministry is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be joyful. It's the greatest gig of all time, <laughs> right? That we get to give our lives away and see someone set free for eternity. Best day ever. As we were celebrating last week with baptisms and seeing some of those people that have come to Christ recently, what great joy we have when we see that. But it's foundational to our confident joy that we have in Christ. Though we may not see the finished work in our lifetime, we will see it finished when we enter the eternity of heaven. We are given that promise that he is faithful to perfect it. We will seek perfection completed when Jesus takes us home to the place and the things that he has been preparing before the foundations of the earth, as Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says. Are you and I aware we are an unfinished work? And this is critically important. As we look at those who maybe rub us wrong or say weird things, right, or are still clinging to things that God is trying to change in their lives. Can we remember and have grace towards one another and remember we are an unfinished work? Are you glad for sanctification, the process of being changed? Are you glad that on the day of salvation, God doesn't just roll everything out in front of you, past, present, and future, all the sins you'll ever commit and just crush you with it, right? Because that's what would happen. We would have to see him in all of his glory and all of our imperfections. But he says, no, you're an unfinished work, but I promise I will finish the work. And the question is, will we extend grace to one another during the process? Will we see it as a joyful process and a joyful partnership? Verse 7 and 8. As we look at that now, Paul's joy in the partnership in the unity of Christ and the confident completion of God's work is based upon what he has experienced with them as they have pursued God together. And it's his great plea and hope 
to see them with the same joy, confidence, and grace. Why? Well, because of Paul's affection for them. And by default, their affection for him. And in fact, all the believers everywhere. In fact, it's rooted in the Lord's affection for all who believe and follow him. In effect, Paul says, how can I feel any other way about you? How could I not be joyful because of what we know and have experienced together? It says, if you're saying you're part of my life, you, you are part of the reason my heart beats passionately. And it, it really makes us, I hope, ask the question, do we have that same kind of love for one another here Calvary Chapel Southeast? Do we have that same kind of love, or love for the other parts of the body of Christ in our community? Or are we taking the attitude that the other churches in our community are the adversary? Because this is not the way it ought to be. Again, I, I want to make sure that we're standing on the truth, that we have a firm foundation that we can pursue together, but in those small distinctives, there ought to be liberality. And that we ought to remember we're pursuing him together and have this amazing joy together. But Paul doesn't stop there. I want to I, I ask this. Do we have the heart that rejoices with those who rejoice? When we come here on a Sunday morning or when we gather in people's homes, do we rejoice with those who rejoice? That's an easy one sometimes. But do we also weep with those who mourn? Do we feel for those? Or do, I mean, sometimes I, I, I admit this. Sometimes I feel like, Lord, I'm so grateful that's not me. Instead of saying, oh, Lord, this is part of me. This person, this body, this member of the body is part of me. Therefore, as they hurt, we also ought to hurt. Do we have this kind of love? Paul continues on in, in chapter 1, verse 9 now, and he says this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. While we reside on the earth, will we know the total height, depth, and breadth of God's love, his grace, mercy, and care. Will we know that? No. It's just not possible. Our finite, our finite minds, our minds that are bound by death, cannot contain all of those things that are true about God. Yet, we do have the opportunity to look forward to that. To be known and to know him even as we are fully known. It says in verse 9 that your love, our love, may abound still more and more. Abound, this word means more than enough. He's saying, I, I desire that your love would be more than enough, that it would be an abundance. And this is where we get this idea of that out of us would well up, overflow springs of living water. There would be more than enough for our lives and also for others. 
And furthermore, it would be based on a real knowledge that we would abound in love based upon real knowledge. That means the truth. They're inseparable. Paul would write similar words to the believers in Colossae, Colossians 2, 2 through 3, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, the character of God is love. We know this. God is, that was kind of soft. God is, God is love. But he's also a God of truth. Apostle John would write in John chapter 1 verse 14, describing Jesus when he came as full of grace and truth. And the grace of God is rooted in his love for us. Amen. And you cannot separate the true. It's not enough for us to have our ideas about love and truth. We need to have God's discernment. John MacArthur defined discernment this way. Discernment is the ability to choose between what is true and right and what is false and wrong. To discern something is to recognize its true worth and validity. In other words, the ability to discern is synonymous with the ability to think biblically. I love this. God's word informs us what real love looks like. God's word informs us about what the truth is, about who we are, who others are, who God is, and how his creation operates. We need to know what God has said about love, truth, grace, Mercy, kindness, patience. Not our idea or the world's ideas about God. Because when we have the heart and mind of God, we can think and act biblically. We will know or be able to approve, as it says there in our passage, the things that are excellent. The good person knows that Brussels sprouts are a good source of vitamin K. It's necessary for blood clotting, bone health. They're high in vitamin C and antioxidants to promote iron absorption and assist with tissue repair, the function of the immune system, all of these things. The discerning person knows that they may cause problems for people who take anticoagulants, increasing the risk of blood clots. And if you eat too many, they cause gas and bloating. <laughs> I don't eat Brussels sprouts. <laughs> but this is the difference, right? This is a little piece of the difference. The difference between knowing something and discerning the truth, the validity, the full measure of it. Sadly, some equate discernment with criticism. Oswald Chambers had something to say about this. He wrote, when we discern that people are going, not going on spiritually and allow the discernment to turn to criticism, we block our way to God. God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize, but that we may intercede, that we may partner joyfully in the work of the gospel together. Discernment is meant to keep us from evil 
and to know what is excellent in God's eyes. Bottom line, discernment enables us to know God's best. This relates back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when it says, so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Why do we need to know the perfect will of God? Our remaining verses tell us. In order to be sincere and blameless. Sincere or pure. In Strong's Greek lexicon, this word means pure, sincere, unsullied, found pure, when unfolded and examined by the sun's light. Blameless. This means to be without offense. Now, there's an old story, I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I like the analogy of it, that uh, an unscrupulous young sculptor wanted, made a mistake in his sculpting and desiring to conceal it to his buyer, he melted some wax in the crack. However, when the sculpture was then put into the garden and exposed to the light of the sun, the wax melted. And the flaw and the deception were revealed. You and I, it says here, you and I are to be pure and blameless without impure motives. To cause no offense when examined by the light of God's word. That when we stand in the presence of God, in, 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 as others are viewing our lives, that we would cause no offense in light of who God is. Now, there are times we are going to be offensive, yes? Because the gospel, it says, is offensive to some. But in light of God's word, we should not be offensive. Instead, we are to be filled with, as our passage says, the fruit of righteousness. And this should remind us of Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. For these things, these are the things that reflect the true nature of God, the nature of Jesus. And if we're speaking and living this consistently, listen, I know that we won't do it perfectly, right? But consistently, our lives will bring praise and glory to God. That is God's natural function. If we are consistently pursuing him and desiring to make him known, it will bring praise and glory to his name. And therefore, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, we should be fixing on our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is where we look forward to being in his presence. And this is the closing. May we know our joyful partnership with Jesus and each other as we share in the gospel work. Amen? Amen. That we would know the joy of that partnership, of walking with Christ and walking together with each other. That this is a joyful thing. Ministry ought to be the craziest, most fun thing to do. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, when we go on vacation, wherever God sends us, 
that we would be the most joyful people because of our partnership with him and with each other. 